Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. After a brief Thanksgiving break, Graham McMillan and I are back for the first of two installments for episode 65, and a look at the classic Defenders run by writer Steve Gerber. But of course, us being us, we also end up discussing Carrier IQ, a big bunch of Karen Gillan books, Batman 252, and Tabatico's first collection of the amazing webcomic Ogloff by Doug Bain and Trudy Cooper. If you've ever wondered why we haven't done very many in-depth looks at classic comic runs, this will probably help you figure it out. Nonetheless, we hope you enjoy, and as always, thanks for listening. Happy Holidays, Mr. Lester. And happy holidays to you, Mr. McMillan. Holy crap, you were very loud just there. <laughs> oh, sorry, did I, like, blow your ears out and now yeah, you're, like, exactly. bleeding? Like, happy holidays, you're like, happy holidays! <laughs> well, I like, realized I was really quiet. Christmas of all. Sometimes I'm, I wait for the other shoe to drop with you, sir, because I, I never know. I never know. Can I just tell the listeners that your um, previous giving the finger picture on Skype has been replaced with a very happy you giving the thumbs up. It's like the break has cheered you up. Yes, that could be it. Actually, it was one of those things where like two seconds before I called you, I'm like, oh, right, I've still got this bullshit flipping off thing. I told you that was the greatest photo. Is it gone? Is that photograph completely disappeared now? Maybe it's completely disappeared, yes. I don't know. I know you were fond fond of it in a Johnny Cash. I yeah, I really did want you to put it on the the Savage Critics just so people could see it. <laughs> I should do that. I don't know. I can't believe that Skype has gotten rid of it forever. I'm sure it's already selling it to like advertisers and. Marketers. Oh oh, I have to tell you what I was just writing about because mm-hmm. this will this will completely appeal to all your completely paranoid fantasies. While I was <laughs> explain why my like i'm going to be kind of weird for at least the first hour because i've literally just been writing right up until now oh um have you heard of carrier iq yet yes i saw a saw a story about it the other day it is shocking but tell me more and or sum it up so let's see carrier iq uh, basically, at this point, all the cell phone manufacturers have said, we're not putting this on the phones. It's carriers. And Sprint and AT&T have owned up to this. Wow. They're like, sure, we put this on, but honestly, we're not tracking anything bad. We're j- uh, for, I should explain. Listeners, Carrier IQ is a keystroke tracking software that is on your cell phone. Yes, if you... well. Now it's is it all Android phones only, or does it? <laughs> it's on the only people who. Well, that's just it. It's been found on BlackBerry, HTC, Nokia, Android, and iPhones. <gasps> it's on iPhone too. Yes. Oh, son of a bitch! Here's the well, thing. So here's the for my feeling of superiority. Here's yesterday. the thing. Apple have actually put out a thing saying if you got iOS five, it's disabled. We stopped supporting it. We did use it, and we stopped supporting it, and it it does not work if you're using iOS five. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But yes, yeah, so, so far comfort considering the, I've had my phone for two years and so I, iOS no, exactly. five for yeah iOS five came out like two months ago. Um, wow. Yeah, exactly. So basically, it's on it's on your phone right now, people. Oh here's man! The, here's the crazy thing. Someone went to Carrier IQ, the company's headquarters, right? Like. You got a statement, and you know what their statement was? We're not going to have a statement until we've had an independent security audit that it's actually doing all these things that they say it's doing. In other words, they don't even know what their own software is doing. (laughs) 
you know, maybe or maybe they're like they feel that it's been overstated or they're buying time. But holy fuck. Oh, holy fuck. That is so evil. Those evil fuckers. I can't believe the rest of the companies. I can't believe Apple was like, oh, yeah, well, sure. Uh-huh. Well, but, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you remember, but the, at the beginning of the year, Apple had location gate. Yes, I remember. So I think that's probably why they were like, we, we should just get rid of all this shit. <laughs> well, yeah, which, thank God. But Ver- man, Verizon, tell ha- Verizon have come out and said, we are not doing it. Anyone who says we're doing this is lying. Uh-huh. Verizon are the only company. So if you have, if you're on a Verizon network, listeners, you don't have this. Well, that's nice. Is I was actually thinking of switching to Verizon when I my iPhone contract was up. Well, that might be more reason to do it, my friends. Uh, Sprint, Sprint, and AT and T both say we use it, but we we're only using it to improve our service. Yeah, they they all say that. Like, who's actually going to say, oh, we use it, but we only use it to survey you? Yeah, exactly. T-Mobile aren't saying anything. Oh, really? That's awesome. like two days and T-Mobile just turned up. T-Mobile is like, we print out all of your text messages and have sex on top of them. You know that... I you saw this story a couple months ago. I wrote about it for uh, for Techline, the uh, elite department, uh, department of justice memo about which cell phone carrier keeps all your text messages for the longest. Oh God! Did I, you, know, did you not know familiar. this? Oh, no, I'm, no, no, I'm no. going to have to look this up now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was a, a leaked uh, department of justice memo, and they've all got like they 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 know who's keeping all your messages. And for how long to keep them, and for how long to keep the numbers, and it's all different companies. It's all different lengths sure. as well. Like it's not like yeah, you'd yeah, be yeah. like, "Well, X is really good because you know Verizon might be good for one thing, and it's terrible for other things." Right. Yeah, you know, and I, I have to say honestly, keeping all the text messages, I'm sort of down with it. Like, there's they've got to keep them for a certain period of time in case you're actually talking about axe murderings. Yeah, exactly. In case you're actually doing something bad. Yeah, which, oh my god. You know, it's really like 2011 was the year that uh, the United States' operation, like, I don't know, absurd dystopian novel kicked into (laughs) gear, wasn't it? Like, it really was. Like, all these corporations are like, yeah, but if it makes you feel better, we're only doing it to fuck you. And meanwhile, the government's like, meh. You know, we just passed a bill that allows the military to uh, put anyone in prison um, forever for no reason. Yeah, because basically anything, the, pre- anything the president does now uh, can be defended as uh, defending the company, uh, the country. Have you seen that? The, yeah. the company. There's a Friday meaningful slip. Yeah, yeah exactly. no kidding. I <sighs> okay, see who keeps your text messages for the longest. T no. Mobile does. No, sorry, AT and T does. AT and T oh. keeps your text messages. For five to seven years. Uh, what? Five to seven years? That, that, sorry, I, they, I'm they not keep, even going keep, to be with them for that long. Keep, That's amazing. Who, who you're sending messages to and when you sent them for five to seven years, they do not keep the content. Only one carrier keeps the content of your text messages. And that's Verizon, and they keep it for three to five days, which isn't that um, long, which is pretty good. I'm okay with that. IP uh, session information, again, mm-hmm. Verizon are the worst. They keep it for a year. If, if not longer, it's a year rolling. Uh, they're also the worst for IP destination information. They keep it for 90 days. Call detail records. Again, mm-hmm. AT&T, five to seven years. After oh you finish your contract. Jesus. 
That's horrific. Yes. And also they keep your bills for five to seven years after you finish your contract. Holy smokes. Man. Well, all I can say is... Happy holidays. Everyone's shooting in. They're like, hey, let's listen to them talk about the Defenders. And we're like, hey, everything you're saying is being tracked. <laughs> exactly. I, I personally hope that Skype has been keeping a hold of all of our calls and will for 10 years. Cause but you know what would be great? Right. That's been every single time that like, we fucked up the recording. Oh, yeah, that would be awesome. We could just see, call Skype and be like, listen, and I, we know you're tracking us. Can you just give us that recording? <laughs> but see, that's it. You never can call them and they can say that. They're, they're always like, you know, they can't even find your fucking account number nine times out of ten. I, I mean, Skype. But like like when you're interacting with like fucking AT&T, like you put in a request for anything, they will not give it to you. But, you know, they keep all this information and they're like, oh, sure, the government, why not? Yeah, but if you think about it, it could, be the, the same, it could be the same in the other direction. So the government are like, we want to check up on Jeff Lester we think he might be subversive and you're like yeah sure we'll get right on that and then they yeah. have no idea where your record is well, see, like, that's what I'm hoping. you said uh, yeah. no we, we've got a Jeff Lister uh, yeah, that would be the best god we have some fan fiction about Jeff and Lester would you want that <laughs> that would make my life a lot it, better it's like we've been watching Chuck for a very long time exactly. so we have Jeff and Lester Every conversation Jester, ever mentioning Je- Jeffster, exactly, is being sent to you. Finally, finally, that pays off for me. That would be awesome. That's never going to happen either. So, uh, Well, actually, you know, I have to say, uh, all this shit is creepy as hell, but reading Steve Gerber's Defenders... Yeah, it kind of fits in, doesn't it? It really does. <laughs> I was, like, really shocked by, like, how much his... This unique Gerber blend of seventies paranoia fits in really, oh, God, really fucking yes. well, you know. Now, like, kind of startlingly so. By the time it gets the Sons of the Serpent storyline, yeah. I honest to God was like, "Wow, this is what I wanted Fear itself to be." Yes, like, like, yes. This is this is more what Fear itself sold itself as than totally. Fear itself was, and it was done mm-hmm. thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah, 30 years ago, and in ways that really made me kind of go, well, Jesus, they can't really talk about that, can they? You know what I mean? Like, it was really, like, I, I, I mean, admittedly, like Marvel Comics of the time, not especially subtle, but really satisfying, and your Fear Itself comparison is dead on, because it really is about crowds of people being whipped into you know masses you know like blind race fear in ways that really resonate now it was uh but also and without the the fantastic four standby of it's the psycho man he has a he has a giant ipad that will make right. you racist do you know what i mean like there's no <laughs> he's got his big thing that he presses like the hate button no, I know. and everyone I know. goes i hate you <laughs> But since this happened, there's no like magical explanation. No, that's it's, the it's thing like, that's really you guys creepy. are all a mess. It just yeah. takes someone to press your buttons, your metaphorical buttons, you know, the button that says hate on the giant iPad. Right. But no, there's that and there's later on when he does the Gardens of the Galaxy thing. Mm-hmm. The the I was genuinely surprised to see we all destroyed the ozone layer with our aerosol cans in a mid nineteen seventies comic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It well, really was like Steve Gerber was the only guy paying attention in the 1970s. 
Well, yes and no. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, on the one hand, you're right. I remember reading stories about the ozone layer when I was a kid, and it was great because then the paper stopped reporting it, and I was so young. I'm like, oh, they solved it. Okay. Whew. You know, but... Uh, <laughs> well, Steve Garber isn't writing about it anymore. I guess they, they got on that, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, but uh, but yeah, no, but John Bruner's The Sheep Look Up, uh, I suspect, was at least um, because everyone's walking around in full-on suits and, and being killed by environmental disasters i suspect i suspect uh bruner's book was um gerber was on it but but yeah the way gerber synthesizes his materials and influences is remarkably modern because i mean then it goes on to the headmen and the headmen not only is at the core of it just this amazingly savage critique of est but there is once again this whole idea of like you know like really steve gerber's view of humanity is pretty much like it's the simpsons springfield like 15 years before ever anyone ever got around to creating it like we're all just like whenever a charismatic leader shows up everyone flocks to him and inevitably is made to you know like like it's interesting like they're always like people are the heroes are always so disappointed that people are drawn to these fake charlton charismatic leaders but, but they always are but they always I, I, are the nebulon yeah. thing is incredible especially yeah. when the president starts doing it oh, and you've got yeah, essentially being like you're going to call us all bozos and you've not been like magically affected you were <laughs> just doing this because it's popular and it's yes. it's, it's it's really the defenders is really savage like it's oh, yeah. it's an incredible satire on America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you can tell just how disappointed and angry Steve Gerber is oh, yeah. at America in, the, mm-hmm. in, in all of it. But I mean, when he gets to Nebulon saying, we're all bozos, embrace your inner bozo. Yeah. Yeah. He, like, it really is. Like, it's funny. I was reading, so I'm reading Essential Defenders and Essential Defenders 2. Mm-hmm. And. Oh, wait. One and two, or two and three? Sorry, two and three is what I mean. Oh, okay, thanks. Um, it's because I started with two. It's, it, yeah, never mind. Um, yeah. And I was like, this is what I wanted Howard the Duck to be as well. Mm-hmm. Howard mm-hmm. the Duck is just too much of its time for me, I think. To, like, I appreciate but I appreciate it, but to a level. Whereas there's yeah. something about the Defenders that seems more timeless. Yeah, actually... Or, or maybe just more contemporary. Contemporary, but also, like, it... it it does because it because it sort of has to straddle the line um i feel that it keeps his impulses reined in like one of the things that's a really i'm not sure if it's i I spent a lot of time debating whether like this was for the best or not but you know as you know they put the howard the duck story in at the end of essential defenders number two um but clearly all the stuff that's happening where Howard gets involved with the Defenders, it all takes place after the Headman stuff. So it pretty much is at the end or the middle, late middle of, of Gerber's run. So when you read it and it's him, he's basically parodying his own run on the Defenders in the course of this eight-page story. Like, I'm not sure if I would have wanted that essentially sort of following his late last issue in... Uh, you know, Defenders 41 or whatever before Jerry Conway comes in um, or not. You know what I mean? No, it is, I, I, I kind of 
I kind of would because it feels more like a farewell than 41 because 41 pretty much feels like a villain and then all of a sudden Jerry Conway's on and he's like hey it's Keith Giffen trying desperately to be Jack Kirby oh my god which I adore but what you know it's, it's distracting isn't it it's distracting as hell because it because it's not just that like Giffen walking in with these big swinging balls where he's like I want to be Kirby and I want to be Starenko, you know what I mean? Like, there's a weird Glenn or Glenda thing going on. Where yeah, he's and just... also failing at both. Oh, yeah. Oh, Which, yeah. Which is the thing. Like, it, it's really... There are parts where... And I love Giffen's work in general, but there are parts where Giffen's work is just actively ugly in that run. Oh, ugly and hard to read. I mean, there's stuff that I think is still sort of quasi-sublime, but, you know... Dude, I don't know if we're gonna have to. Are we just gonna ramble about and then zero in on topics? Or I had all these. Okay, okay. Like, well, I, I, first, okay. let's start with Marvel Two and One. You know, I, I want to throw something at you, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think this is better. Yeah. Okay. Garber's Defenders is taking the classic Marvel formula as far as it can go, which ends up turning back in itself. So if, uh, if yeah. Marvel formula is superheroes are just like us. Mm-hmm. Gerber's Defenders is superheroes have to deal with everything like us. So superheroes have to deal with society and superheroes have to deal with essentially dumb shit. Mm-hmm. And instead of humanizing the superheroes, it puts what we are going through in some sort of epic context. Yeah, I think that's absolutely brilliant. In fact, that that was the thing that I found myself thinking while reading these issues is even with the heavy elements of satire in it, um, Gerber's stuff in some weird way reminded me more of Silver Age DC stuff now that I've had some of it under my belt because a lot of the um, wh- a lot of what we think of as the sort of traditional Marvel hero with the feet of clay, I'm going to whine a lot kind of thing, doesn't really happen in the Defenders. Like the 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 whiniest character in the book is Jack Norris, Valkyrie's estranged husband, and you you get a little bit of Valkyrie doing her whole like who am I? I don't know, weep weep kind of thing, but but there's a lot there's a lot more which i was really surprised by like one of the things i really adored about that guardians of the galaxy story is pretty much after they get filled in on that amazing terrifying timeline of the marvel earth as it falls into uh, eventual enslavement by the badoon is Basically, Doctor Strange is like, okay, well, we're going to free them. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Right into, it is so Silver Agey. There is very few aspects in this story where people just encounter each other and then sort of wander off. Like, more often than not, the Defenders come across a menace and then are like, okay, well, we're going to shut this shit down. But what I also like about the Defenders, at least in Gerber's, because, I mean, when you get into Conway, it kind of falls off. Mm -hmm. But... The non-team thing actually makes sense to me in Gerber's because oh, yeah. it's four friends who, yeah. who aren't going out to be superheroes, but things will happen to them. And then other guys will like wander in and out to help yes. them solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is just, is... it's a beautiful setup. It's, it you is. Know, it's four friends and the other people who happen to be around at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and the friendship part really does stick. Again, this is the other part I really liked about Gerber, is some of the stuff is kind of rem- remarkably understated. Like, you don't really get huge senses of, say, who Doctor Strange is, but he's 
always incredibly consistent. He's usually explaining what he's doing in the minute, but there's not a lot of, you know, well, it is I who... I mean, he does this stuff for his friends and and then gets involved with trying to do this larger right thing. But it's amazing to me, like, how much more the tone of, of Gerber's Defenders and the tone that followed it, since he was so influential, stuck with me more than the the kind of the weird shit that goes on with the Avengers. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I think the thing that's fascinating to me is, is it seems like a lot of the later reboots of the Defenders from the last few decades have really stuck to the idea of, oh, this is a a secret team. This is yeah, the exactly. secret team. And I, I think what sticks out more is even though they sort of mention secret sort of in passing, it's the, these are people who for better or for worse are friends with each other. Yeah. It's, you know? it's not that they're secret, not because they're trying to be secretive, but because they're not really a team. Yeah. It's exactly. four friends who just happen upon things. Yeah. Exactly. And some of those, because some of those friends are incredibly private, like Doctor Strange, suddenly it becomes sort of a secret team, you know, but they're not, you know. It's really like community as a group of superheroes, you know, uh, to, to mix the eras. You so know? suddenly somewhere is like, wait, I've got it. <laughs> but but no, it's, it's a remarkably warm run. It is. And, and really so. early on. I mean, Gerber comes on and it's what? In his first or second issue of the series where Val's like, oh, I need somewhere for my horse. And now he's just like, I'll buy you a stable. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And there's no, I don't know, it's not really the setup for some melodramatic, no, you can't do that. I barely know you. Mm-hmm. They're just like, he's rich. And, and that's it. That's the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, which is nice because actually the later stuff with David Anthony Kraft, I sort of like the characterization, but they have this thing where it's like Nighthawk keeps trying to be a leader and isn't, um, which I thought was kind of a nice twist on that sort of Marvel-y thing, but was not nearly as much fun as him being like, oh, you need this? Here, let me get this. And Luke Cage is like, I don't want to be a part of a team. I can't afford this. He's like, here, here, here. I'll pay you to be on retainer half time. Come on. Like, come have adventures with us. We like you. Yeah, you which know? is a lovely fix. And it's so logical as well. Yeah. But, but exactly. it really is just, I don't know. There's there's something just really warm about the whole thing. The, even yeah. the, the tone of the adventure is, you know, mm-hmm. They're sons of the serpent. They're fighting intolerance. Yeah, you know they save the earth because it's the right thing to do. As opposed to, I don't know. Like, you get the feeling that if the Guardians of the Galaxy had appeared in an Avengers title, they would have fought. Right. Then they would have fought internally as to whether they have the rights to go to the future to save the earth. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's all these other things, but the Defenders just like, let, let's just do it. Like, what sort of people would we be if we're just like, well, that sucks. Well, you know, this is the thing that I think is really interesting is comic books nowadays are so um, centered around kind of the, the screenwriter's screed of like, it's got to be personal. You know what I mean? Like, you've got to have the dramatic stakes be high. So, like, if something happens, it's got to have this, like, incredibly personal meaning for so-and-so. Like, so, like, what you were saying with the Avengers, it's almost like they would argue among themselves, and then it would come out that one of the Guardians is actually the ancestor of one of these people, and then they have to, like, do it, you know? Yeah. But here, with the exception of the the, the kind of amazing Valkyrie four-parter... Um, 
like Gerber kind of does have this thing of like yeah they they what they're doing is they're doing because they stumble across this stuff and then they just refuse to to you know just walk away from it i kind of love this stuff where valkyries like in the ghetto and like there's that you know just this that enormous rat that's the size of a cat or something threatening a baby which totally freaked me out when i first read it when i was a kid you know <laughs> totally freaked me out when i read it this time but i've read these comics many times i know and it's just like, really disturbing i'm always like i wish that was fictional <laughs> exactly. That doesn't actually exist, but I mean, it does. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it really sort of does. I I do think that there's a way that Gerber comes about as close to fulfilling one side of the Mar- Marvel societal contract, the unwritten one, you know, that says like this stuff is meaningful and relevant to the real world, like. It, but, but you know, I was going yes. to say he does it in a way that other comics don't. He does it in a way that exactly. No, but I mean, even in the seventies, you got you've kind of got Engelhart doing a similar thing, mm-hmm. but not to the same extent at all. Right. Yeah, and yeah, no yeah, one's yeah. really managed this trick since because since I then don't... relevance has become Denny O'Neill revel- relevance. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's been, I will be making this grand statement. And Gerber's making all of these small statements that add up to a grand statement. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're very, very small. They're very lodged in this... Um, you know, I wish I had dug up the, the, the essay. This was something that I meant to do back when I was like, I'll be prepped for this. Uh, Michael Chabon had an essay about... Marvel Comics in the 70s. Actually, I think it was just about pop culture and sort of talking about how sort of Marvel Comics in the 70s were sort of as close as you could kind of get to, you know, sort of a progressive social humanist entertainment or something like that. And I really, I'd be curious to see what his other stuff is uh, that he's thinking of, because I can't think of a better example, really, than Gerber's Defenders, where it is very much tied in a, a, a form of warmth and kind of a, an appeal for rationality that, um, you know, seems more or less resigned to, you know, only being heard every so often. Like, you know, the the default button really just gets set as far as, like, the next cult leader comes along and pretty soon everybody's signing up for that as well. So It is funny that he does two cult leader stories. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Like, he does Sons of the Serpent... And then, well, he actually really alternates. If you look at the the way that they lay this stuff out, you know, the Celestia story is the chick with the harmonica is such a mix of like sort of weird human elements and then this weird celestial element. Then you get the one issue of the headmen where they show up and then disappear. And then you've got those two giant sized defenders issues that are, you know, like he does cosmic stuff like he alternates the cosmic stories and the cult stories and then of course the headman's this mind fuck of a, a mix of the two at the end there you I, know? I have to say this before I forget did you know the headmen weren't original characters when I found out the origin of the headmen my mind was blown oh uh no I they're, they're from pre Marvel monster comics are they yeah all of the, that's not true. The three first ones, Chon right. and Arthur Nagin and whatever the third guy is called. I knew Chon Du sounded familiar, but I just assumed it was Gerber taking the piss on. No, they're they all characters who existed, and the way they first appear is the way they were left at the end of the original story. 
Oh man, that is fucking amazing. It is. <laughs> when I found that, I was like, oh, there's a collection I want to read. Yeah, I went through the Headman collection, but starting with those stories and ending with the last <laughs> That would be astonishing. Yeah, there was weird stuff like that. In fact, I spent a lot of time wondering if, um, you know, Trish Starr, the Kyle's girlfriend who gets her arm shorn off in that kind of horrifying sequence in uh, Giant Size Defenders number four, I think. Um, the way they were talking about her, I'm like, is this another pre-existing, like, you know, like when they brought back Patsy Walker as Hellcat, I'm like, is this somebody who was, like, in Marvel's, like, girl mag- girl comics that they just, you know, modernized? Or what's going on there? She, and... she was from... Because she says, she says it in the comic. Um, Mm -hmm. She's from Ant-Man or something. Yeah, she is. I mean, as far as I can tell, she's from that Ant-Man solo series where she's like Egghead's niece or whatever. Uh, Let's see. Her first appearance was Marvel feature number five. Really? In 1971? Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I want to say it was Gary Friedrich's uh, Ant-Man series. I don't remember who did the art on that. Was that Dan Atkins? I have no idea, but I've just discovered that she appears many times after that. She goes over to the Incredible Hulk for a long time. Yeah, which is weird, right? You know, I and then I, the I'm Avengers. Sort of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Really weird. Like I looked that looked that up while looking on one of the Marvel Wiki things, and of course I was looking for the early stuff. But I was like, I mean, that is the thing that I do adore about uh, Marvel back in the seventies is. They introduced heroes, but they also introduced supporting characters, and they would just kind of bounce around from book to book. And hopefully, if you were lucky, they were treated with respect. Yeah, you know, I I, I love that. I actually love that when the X Men were doing that when their book was essentially cancelled. That Engel yeah. Engelhart takes them through multiple books. He takes them through. They're in Marvel team up. That might not be Engelhart, but then they're in Captain America. Captain America. Then they're in Avengers. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's actually like it's a plot that goes through mm-hmm. all of them. And then that plot goes somewhere else. I can't remember where it ends up. Yeah. Um, but I loved that. I loved, especially because I don't think I re- eventually read all the stories until this year. Oh, interesting. And I was like, oh, this is totally <laughs> connected back to a story I read when I was seven. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that is astonishing to me is reading this stuff and being like, Wow, I was kind of an incurious kid. I mean, maybe part of it was I didn't have access to. We had a brief, a comic shop briefly in the town where I grew up in, but most of this stuff was bought like uh, from the supermarkets. And actually, my dad had some sort of source where he was buying like half of these. I was like reading the Defenders. I'm like, oh, I don't have this issue. I never read this issue. I don't recognize the cover. And then I'd be like. Oh, like I had the stripped remaindered copy that my dad must have bought for a nickel or something, you know. Um, and I was like incredibly grateful to get my hands on it, you know. So but it's funny because uh, these defenders I didn't read when they came out, obviously, because I'm I'm not even sure I was alive for some of them. Yeah, I was about to say I'm I'm uh, older than. No, you I was. So. I was. I was one and two, I believe. Oh, well, then you read them. Yeah. yeah, I read them. No, but here's the thing. I read them, I read some of them really young because there was a second-hand bookstore in town and I must have been seven or eight and someone clearly got rid of their entire collection of American comics because I remember going in one day and there was maybe seven stacks, each one having like 100 comics in it and they were selling them off for like 10 pence. 
Oh my and god! So, no joke. And but there weren't. There wasn't like a complete run of anything. Right. Of course. Um, so for months, I would on the way back from school stop in and pick up like ten. Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. And so I read like issues from this run mm-hmm. back then. So That's I have this amazing. weird hyper nostalgia for like one chapter in the middle of these right exactly the the nebulon thing Uh, yeah where you're like i have every panel of this com of this issue memorized you know the plant man versus luke cage issue right but it's got all the subtext that when i was seven or eight i had no idea about Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean i was like hey there's this guy and he's got people dressed up as clowns that's cool kind of weird though yeah and now it's reading through you're like oh my god Right, right. Yeah, that was shit that I just sort of like, you just kind of go like, oh, okay, that's what it is. Which I think is one of the things that's really wonderful about this stuff. Like having having people suddenly appear with their bozo heads is such a beautiful bit of comic book surrealism that like even if you don't get what's being satirized, like it's impossible to miss what's being said there, so, or 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 if nothing else, you're just transfixed. You know what I mean? Like that whole timeline where the world goes to shit is such an, a phenomenal issue because everything's so jam packed with it, and yet the the images themselves can kind of stick with you, even when being drawn by you know Sal Basima. God bless him. Do not say anything against Sal Basima. Oh, I know Sal, he's got Sal some Basima, great work in this. Yeah, Sal Basima in the this run is. I God, he does. He is, he does isn't he? The greatest work, and also, yeah. maybe it's just as I become older, but Selvacima has become like nineteen seventies Marvel for me. Mm. There's something about his work that it is very clearly Selvacima, and also, and this is heresy for I think everyone who's going to hear this. Yes, Doctor Strange only looks right for me when drawn by Selvacima. Interesting. You know what I found fascinating was that there was um, when Cla- like the. I I always have a soft spot for when Gerber is drawn by super traditional artists because then it looks so weird. Yeah, so exactly. There's something so much more wrong about it. Wrong like, about like, it, yeah. Uh, Jim, Jim Mooney. <laughs> Sorry, it was by Sal Basima, inked by Jim Mooney in a couple no. of issues in this. No, no, when, then, when it's Vince Coletta for me. Oh, yeah. There, oh, right, there's right, something right, about exactly. that that, A, it, some of the panels are just absolutely beautiful. But B... Mm-hmm. It's so. It's honestly like the cool kid is running with the squares. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. It is so square, and yet that really helps make it stand out. And it's interesting to me how when Claus Jansen comes in and starts inking Basima and really running with it, like suddenly the facial expressions are way more, um, you know. Uh, distinct, you know, yes. and detailed, and it's kind of it's kind of amazing. I mean, and again, I read it at the time, but I remember as a kid, kind of going like, uh, "What's this all about?" And even now, there's I still have this element of like, "Yeah, it's good, but it seems too much." Like suddenly, it's like, "Oh, I don't know." There's there's not quite that that jarring juxtaposition. Yeah, there's actually a panel in... Let's see, what issue is it? It is issue 37. Mm-hmm. The second last page of issue 37 when uh, Nightwing is talking about his spiritual experience when he was outside of his body, literally. Yes. Uh-huh. 
Um, it's just the second panel on the page where it says, I couldn't really see or hear, hear or feel, but I thought I could. There's something about the inking in that that is so overpowering. Yeah. yeah but yeah, yeah, it works. Yeah, yeah. It does. It does. Because by, by like throwing way, way, way more black around the pillow. Exactly. Like what the hell is going on in the pillow there? If, if yeah, you exactly. It subjectively, you're like... <laughs> The pillow has had an ink blot behind it. Yeah, exactly. Something like, is growing. Yeah. Exactly has exploded. But in the sense of capturing his his isolation and the jaggedness of of his consciousness, it's spectacular. Back, yeah, it's absolutely perfect. And they do do some things with Doctor Strange where Jansen's drawing it that are just gorgeous, like Colin and Frank Bruner influence, like that one, the. Um, uh, the splash page of issue thirty nine, where um, where like Doctor Strange is like meditating, and then there's the weirdo floating head, the leering face yes. of his enemies above him. Yeah, and it's yeah, I mean it's lovely. You know, it's it's just a lovely piece of Doctor Strange art. But but I also see totally see what you mean by um, there's something where Doctor Strange popping up as a superhero in superhero fights um, is. Like, nobody even sort of says, like, hey, you're not supposed to be here. But I think that always seems like that's the first thing, again, that kind of pops up whenever they, revive, you know, revive the Defenders is, you know, Doctor Strange is like, well, even though I'm not supposed to engage in combat, you know, kind of thing. Watching the Venture Brothers really has twisted your brain, hasn't it? It has, has it? totally Doctor Orpheus. <laughs> well, totally, because I love when they have him. Like, Venture Brothers is such a big, fat, sloppy kiss to Marvel Comics. Oh, it really um, is. And I, I adore that. I was actually uh, last week watching some 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 episodes from season three, and uh, they were just phenomenal. But um, Venture Brothers also seems... I could believe the Venture Brothers writers could do a great Defenders. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah because yeah. there's there's not only an awareness... Like, this is, I think, what really appeals to me about Gerber's work mm-hmm. on this comic in particular. There's an awareness of the ridiculousness. Yes. There's a willingness to submit to that ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. But there's also a passionate interest in the world outside of comics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, yeah, it's it's a great mix. But totally, while I was reading these issues, some of the headmen stuff, I'm like, I have to stop hearing the monarch's voice. <laughs> I have to stop hearing the Yeah, yeah. Chondu for me is the monarch. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Because he's always complaining about everything. He's just unbelievably bitchy. So yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wonderful. Um, and dude, that elf with a gun thing. I was you know? just about to say that. <laughs> uh, the elf with a gun thing. I have no idea where he was going. I was it just to fill a page, or where was he? Was it? It was. It well, was. You I, know that it eventually got finished, right? Well, it more or less kind of does in like one page in the David Kraft run where the elf gets run over by a bus. Oh, no, then J- they James bring it Matthews back later. Him back. Yeah. Oh, okay. James okay. Matthews brings him back uh, at the, in the final issues of the run as Defenders before it becomes New Defenders. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Which I read uh, years ago and I can't remember how he, he finishes it. But he, yeah, he does bring it back, and he get, he gives it a payoff. Soon to remember, it's a payoff that even back then I was like, "What? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> this is not a good payoff." Um, this this that's the other thing I find fascinating about about Defenders 
Gerber's run is like, um, like that Bill Mantlo fill-in issue for issue thirty is actually clearly like uh, a work that you know Mantlo has read and kind of loves Gerber's Defender. It's not a bad faux Gerber issue, you know, with those like robots singing "We're in the Money" while beating up the the defenders. Like it's really, it's really odd. <laughs> and that's what we like. Well, but I'm impressed by a way that this guy who, I mean, admittedly, you know, did uh, a, a, an essential and a half worth of material, um, you know, essentially goes on that nobody ever really escapes his shadow. <laughs> you know, I don't even think they want to. I mean, David Anthony Kraft stuff uh, with Keith Giffen, um, which I loved when I was a kid and rereading it now, I was like, ooh, ooh boy, you know, um, <laughs> It, Although I'd say David Kraft does the Defenders for a Day arc in the next collection, which mm-hmm. might be my favorite Defender story. Yeah, I mean, it's I I actually still love the run up to the end of uh, like the Who Scorpio storyline. I actually dig. I thought the Soviet Union story was just a huge fucking mess. Yeah, no, no, there's definitely parts that that do not um, work shall we say yeah 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 and in fact it actually seems like he's kind of there's kind of so bad at plotting that there's so much stuff that you realize would be milked for pathos like especially in the Soviet Union one where he's pretty much like yeah everyone's having a big fight but they're all dying of radiation poisoning and nobody can figure that out like that's kind of like a holy fuck kind of thing but he barely has enough time to mention it you know in a panel or two as opposed to really kind of milk that Um, but but yeah, Kraft clearly adored Gerber's work, and the lunatic stuff is very much an attempt to kind of do a fake version of that. I actually love, interestingly enough, reading the Kraft stuff, the stuff that stuck for me is the Valkyrie in college stuff is all great. Yes, Dollar Bill. Yeah, Dollar Bill is just amazing. And I remember liking him, you know, as a kid, but rereading this shit, it was this weird thing of like... Oh, Kraft kind of figured out some way to plug his experiences into the book, you know, in a way that wasn't just, oh, I'm going to rip off Gerber. But the whole thing of, you know, college students and film buffs and, you know, rich kid jerks, you know, it was just great. Kraft has some really good stuff later in his run, I think. And I, and I, I feel that his run is too short. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of weird because then it goes on to Ed Hannigan writing for a while. Yes, exactly. And Take his from the art garden. Right? His run is also really um, idiosyncratic, I guess. <laughs> like it's a, it could only have happened in the Defenders. I think at some point, some point, probably during Gerber's run, the Defenders became the. This guy's kind of weird, but he's got, probably got a fan base. So right. let, let's just stick him on Defenders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love that about it. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And they really take that. And of course, it's, I believe Hannigan still is the guy writing it when they decide to wrap up the Omega the Unknown stuff. But he, he, he isn't writing, well. he doesn't write those issues. Does he? Is uh, it Kraft or is it? Yeah, I Grant. thought it was Hannigan was Stephen, writing it. Stephen Grant does fill in issues for those. Really? Yes. Wow. No wonder why Grant like goes on to talk about being bitched out by using other prose work without their permission. Hmm. I always wondered if it was Gerber. That seems super likely now. I'm going to blow your mind for something in a second. Please do. I've just looked up Elf with a Gun on Wikipedia. Yes. 
after he dies in the Defenders, what mm-hmm. comic do you think he appears in next? I'll give you a clue. It's written by Steve Gerber. Uh, okay, you gotta give me uh, give uh, the Fool Killer series. No, much better. Oh, I'll give you another uh, clue. It's probably never going to get reprinted. Ah, shit. Um, God damn it. Uh, what year? Seventy-eight. Oh, really? Seventy-eight? Yeah. Um, shit. It's not Omega the Unknown because that got collected. Uh, it's not going to be Marvel Two and One. It's not going to be Howard the Duck. Oh, Christ! Is it Marvel okay. Comics Super Special Issue Five, where the elf with the with a gun finds himself Meets in limbo Kiss? with Kiss? Oh shit! Oh, I never would have gotten that. Oh my god! <laughs> The elf that finds himself in the land of the lost, a realm where iconic characters relive the 60s. He encounters the rock band Kiss, but does not kill them, only pretends to. <laughs> Dude, why, you know, didn't that stuff ever get reprinted? I, oh, I doubt it'll get reprinted you know, by Marvel. Like it's these... probably reprinted by someone. Well, see, this is it. This is why, like, there was that huge Kiss omnibus that I saw, like, you know, in a, a discount bin. Um, and I I was all over that. Like, no. Oh but no, I know it was all of Joe Casey's stuff and all the image stuff. But I'm like, because the thing is, is I they probably didn't have an issue of Kiss that didn't have some Marvel hero in it, so they can't. Oh my God! The Alpha God then reappeared as a photo of Destroyer Duck in 1996. <laughs> oh my God, Steve Gerber, I love you. Are you serious? Yes, in the Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck special. <sighs> Oh my god, Savage Dragon Destroyer Duck number one. Oh my god. Well, I think I owe Eric Larson a big thank you the next time I see him, because that's... I know what I have... See, this is why I'm like, Comixology, why don't you have every comic on here ever? <laughs> ever. Like, I know. Yeah, I, oh god, because we would spend too much money. That's, that's, I guess that's every it. comic ever printed was available, I can't tell you the terrible things I would buy, because I'd be like, I'm curious about this. It's 99 cents and available right now. That yes. Was, yeah, very, very bad thing for me. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, like, um, I read a Batman story that I purchased that was part of the DC retroactive event, you know, that mm-hmm. was like, they were all 99 cent reprints. It was awesome. I guess I'll have to talk about this when we go back to having a sort of regular wait what, because I've got a, a weird, you know, of course, while I was focusing on Gerber, I had all these like amazing like comic book experiences. I, like, I've also I had a really great this. week for reading comics. Did you really? <laughs> it's really, really. I what? If what is this? Is it because we decided to focus on Gerber that all of a sudden we start reading lots of other things? I, I guess so. I have I guess to tell so. you. Do you know partially what it is? What? Do you know what I read last night? And you can guess what they all have in common. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't all fifty-two issues. It wasn't that. No, no, well, no, it wasn't. But that hardcover is astoundingly heavy, according to the DC blog today. It actually weighs seven point nine pounds. Holy God! Oh um, my God! Yeah, I, I, listeners, I got mailed a promo copy of the new fifty-two hardcover. Seriously, just the fact that they mailed you that, Graham. Like, how much postage is that? It's like eight pounds. I, I don't even want to know. Yeah, it's seven point nine pounds. Oh my anyway, God. this is what I read yesterday. Yes. Uncanny X-Men issue 2 being the new series, not the original. Oh, okay. Unca- one with like 10 artists or something? Yeah. Uncanny okay. X-Men, the Brickworld collection. Wow. Thor, Ladvirian, oh, what's it called? Ladvirian Colossus, I think it might be called. <laughs> wow. Thor, Siege, Aftermath, Phonogram, Rue, Britannia, and Phonogram, The Singles Club. 
What do they all have in common? Uh, I guess this would be Mystery Man Kieran Gillen. Yes, for some reason. And it's, honest to God, with the exception of Uncanny X-Men, which obviously I bought, all the others just happened to show up in the library on the same day. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. It Holy was. Shit. The world was telling me that last night I should read lots of Kieran Gillen. Huh. Did the, and did you come to a conclusion as to why the world would be telling you that? Or? Uh, probably because Kieran Gillen's great. And that's, that sounds compl- like right now Kieran Gillen is listening to this and being like, shut up. However, um, no one, I think, apart from Walt Simonson and Stan Lee can make me like Thor. I just come to this realization. Interesting. Uh, nonetheless, I, I was entertained by his Thor. I mm-hmm. surprisingly loved his break world trade. I didn't yeah, expect you know, that was at all, and really mm-hmm. liked it. I remember that uh, uh, what's his name at thinking too much about comics. Uh, Colin oh, Colin Smith. Yeah, I want to say Smith. I think he wrote a, a, a um, an essay sort of praising Kieran's like break world stories for being sort of like really kind of good classic X Men stuff. But as we, it's what Matt Fraction wanted to do in X Men. <laughs> Mm-hmm. but for some reason found himself unable to do. I know. Um, Uncanny X-Men issue 2 is of that, and Wolverine X-Men issue 2, I find myself actually liking Uncanny and the X-Men more, mm-hmm. which kind of surprised the hell out of me. And um, Phonogram, Phonogram just makes me happy, and I'd actually forgotten how much I loved the Singles Club until mm-hmm. I read it in trade. Because for some reason, when I moved, I only brought half the issues of Singles, uh, Singles Club with me. Huh. I have I have the first three issues of the last three, which I had bought, which I have read before. <laughs> I can't find them. Um, huh. But yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd forgotten just how... Talking about humanists, talking about things that just make me feel good about humanity. The Singles Club right. makes me love people in the same way that Gerber's Defenders did. Just to bring it back to Gerber's Defenders. Wow, very nice. Uh, that's going to be... a uh, that's going to be rough because I have to say I've read I think the first two issues of Singles Club and I thought it was much better than I liked um, the, the first series. Oh, okay, is that is that the part that's yes. really necessary? Yes. Okay. Right. You you have to read the whole thing in order to not in order to get it because each one functions as its own story. But it's one of those things because you like even by issue two you'd realize that it was the same night seen from different people's point of view. Mm-hmm. And it just gets seeing richer really sounds pretentious. It gets richer. You there's so much more texture. Um, <laughs> but I like it, your but pretentious it, it does. It's really good. Oh, you also missed my hand gesture, which I was doing at the same time. Uh, <laughs> it, it really does. The, uh, you they all just seem more real by the time you finish the this, this series. By the time hmm. you finish all six stories, you. Or maybe, maybe this is me being, hey, I remember being, you know, mid-twenties and going to clubs and, you know, being these people. Um, right. But no, I, I found myself really, really drawn to this book. I, I, it's one of these books that, it's one of my favorite comics, I think. And I think I was really surprised to realize that last night. Wow. It's, it's a comic that I have, did, would not have ever thought... You know, this is a comic I would show to people who have never read comics and be like, this is why I love comics. But it kind of is. Mm-hmm. I just came away from it feeling so positive about comics and about 
people and whole Shabbat. I, I can't wait for my new man, Jeff Lesser. Wow. I, uh. I, I love the singles club. Hmm. Rue Britannia, I have so many problems with, but the singles club, I love. Oh my god, you were so much nicer on Rue Britannia than I ever was. Uh, so uh, that's kind of interesting. It's really funny to read the two of them back to back like I just did. <laughs> no, I, I can imagine. They are wow, that, significantly that different books. Well, uh, by contrast, if anyone wants to know the dopey issue that I bought of uh, off Comixology, I, I assume it's still there for 99 cents. It is Batman issue 252, Batman versus the Spook. And the story is called The Spook's Masterstroke. The story is by Frank Robbins, and the art is by Irv Novick and Dick Giordano. And it is a quote-unquote done-in-one um, in which uh, the spook, who is a, a convicted murderer who was executed in the electric chair ten years previous, has come back and uh, basically has this this claim that he will he, he's offering to break anyone out of prison for a fee because apparently this guy the spook had been executed for he killed his boss. Um, it turns out that essentially he has uh, the architecture plans for all of Gotham's prisons. And so he can break in and break out of any prison, and that's what he's offering for a fee. So Batman's like, well, of course, clearly this man is, you know, alive and has faked his own death, and I'm going to prove it. And the next 20 pages or so, is it 20 pages? I think it's only a 13-page story is this really just clever game of cat and mouse between Batman and the spook as each uh, let's just say there's several different sets of reversals there and it was just a pretty goddamn good issue of Batman, I have to say like it was like it was no muss, no fuss. Um, you know, I've read some of Frank Robbins' other Batman stuff from this time. Like, he, he would do, like... In fact, I think he might have drawn the uh, Man Bat in Las Vegas stuff that I sort of remember really fondly from when I was, like, eight. This was a story that I had read and did not realize that I had read it until, I until like, the bottom of page eight where there's a sequence where Batman's walking through a tunnel. And it's amazing because it's the only thing I remember about the story is that one little thing at the bottom of page eight. And it's... This story's from... Like, comics were still 20 cents. So I don't... I can't find the original publication date for it. But... Weirdly, if you want an old 99-cent issue of Batman that was a re- pretty good, uh, you know, 70s issue of Batman that is not like you're watching Neil Adams just, you know, draw crazy faces, it was good. I actually liked it much better than the Batman book from the from the prior issue, which was uh, a Denny O'Neill, um, Neil Adams Joker issue. So, go figure. I love that era. Yeah, it's kind of great. Is kind of, I mean, it's funny because there is there's a nice when it's not overdone. You know, it's it's very, it's it's contemporary Batman, but before Frank Miller. You know, <laughs> and so it's kind of you know, that sounds really obvious, but I'm like reading. Uh, uh, it no, 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 Frank Miller kind of completely not ruins Batman, but 
He kind of did. He changed. Brian Miller was so big on Batman and Daredevil, on both of them, that he kind of ruined the character. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They just they just were never quite the same again. Um, Yeah, where is this? Moon of the Wolf. I did not read this yet. Anyway, so that was great. The, <laughs> well, what's the, really funny is that that's the era of Batman I I was going to say grew up on, but I was guess I was older than growing up because that was the era of Batman that was reprinted by British comic. Oh, okay. I was wondering because I'm like, dude, I was really young when I read this stuff. I don't know. That was reprinted by I'm uh, yeah, what was going to say 89 maybe 89 90. Wow. Um, I have no idea why they went with that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Because it was also a Superman comic being done at the same time. And they were going, John Byrne. And yet the Batman comic was like, here's this 1970s stuff with Irv Novikard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It must have been the time where, you know, the guy, the guy, the, the British publisher was like, this is the shit. This I is don't Batman. care about the rest of it. <laughs> this is Batman as we know him and love him. Um, yeah, so that was great. The other amazing comics experience I had over the last, during our little break, was Lauren Davis got me uh, the book uh, Oglaf, O-G-L-A-F. It's a collection of the webcomic. Uh, let's see if they've got the artist's name in it. Um, uh, Doug Bain, by Doug Bain and Trudy Cooper. Have you ever heard of it or seen it? No. It is unbelievably filthy, and it is... <laughs> It is unbelievably Why is Lauren Davis great. buying you porn? Well, that is a good question, and, and I don't know, but thank you, Lauren. You know what it is? It's because Lauren has recommended nine million uh, web comics to me, and the only ones that seem to stick are the porno ones. So, like, she recommended Menage Three, which is hands down one of my like favorite web comics. I read it religiously three days a week, and I just I'm and uh, so Oglaf is very much inspired by, I think, the sort of porno comics that um, Phil and Cat Foglio used to do. <coughs> I can't remember the name of it. I should have looked it up. So it's a fantasy comic strip with a lot of porn elements, but it rapidly becomes not just a comedy, but kind of a brilliantly done, uh, like, epic comedy like the the characters that they introduce one by one each sort of come back and and keep with their various porny shticks but somehow mixed with god what was the description that i i had it was it was basically like if you sort of wanted um carl barks to do a game of thrones comic book Oglaf <laughs> is like about as close as you're going to get you know wow because, also i can't believe that people on the internet are not going to freak out over that yeah i hope so i hope so i i always come up with these great taglines and everybody will be like yeah i pretty much coughed up a lung when you described it as that i'm like great did you get the book hello 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 Hello? Is this on? I'm still here. All of a sudden, you just started saying hello, hello. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. That was me being facetious about the, are you listening to me and my recommendations? I thought you never mind. Facetiousness doesn't work on the internet. I know. It's really tough, particularly when it's auditory jokes on Skype. Like, it's just not going to work. Like, that was my, that was my mistake. Anyway, Oglaf, I don't. It would be really interesting. I can't really imagine how you would feel about it, but it is, it's hilarious. It is really filthy. Like, just the fact that there is, um, 
I can't even describe some of the terms because I feel we'll go to jail. But it is it is <laughs> remarkably filthy. Despite being sex obsessed, there is not like a ton of sex in the book. Just rampant amounts of nudity, all of which serve a highly comical purpose. So it's it's a damn good book. I I was shocked by how much I adored it, and I I owe Lauren Davis a super big thank you for it. Everyone should go go check out go to. Uh, Topatoko? Why can't I've actually? I know, I know, but I'm not even going to try and say it because I have such a problem with that site. Topatoko? Do you have a problem with the site? With with the the name of it. Oh, okay. I actually love the site, but the name of it's a real problem for me. Kate Beaton said it like nine million times when I met her at Ape because, of course, she was self-publishing her book through them, and so she said it a million. And I, I was like. Topatico. To be able to repeat this. Topatico? Yeah, I think that's it. Topatico? I'm, yeah. I'm actually staring at it, being like, Topatoco. Topatoco. <laughs> I, I think it's Topatoco. Oh, man. Topatoco. That sounds great. <laughs> Are you hungry, Jeff? I kind of am. I kind of am. I had some amazing pickled eggs today. I have no waffle stories, but man, the, the pickled eggs. Oh, so good. I can tell you, and this is complete, like, we have now completely left the government <laughs> I'm so sorry, everyone. This is what happens to Jeff and I talk for two weeks. We just, we start on topic, and then we go wildly off topic. The yeah. Waffle Window has now started a rewards program. Wait, who started a rewards Okay, somehow Skype cut you off twice. What was it? Waffle Window has started a <gasps> What? Yeah. Has- you can check in on your phone somehow. Oh, like, and if you if you go ten times, you get a free waffle. Son of a bitch! Oh my god! I wonder if I can actually go ten times in one visit. I mean, you know, like <laughs> I'm in sure, a three. I'm day sure visit. you could because I don't know if you remember, but you went three times a day last time you were here. Yeah, I did. But to be fair, only because they kicked me out after a certain point. Otherwise, it could have been one very extended visit for like six hours. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, th- uh, I think it's actually... I think it might be the number of waffles you buy, so you might actually be able to do it. Dude, that's great, because I do... It's like, I, you know me, it's like two or three <laughs> per visit. You know me! <laughs> I love me some waffles! I sure... I'm turning into <laughs> Jesus, like whatever... Whoever the real-life inspiration was for the fucking Hamburglar, and you know there was one. <laughs> Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah, you know that, that Grimace, the guy obsessed with shakes? That was actually my buddy, Jake Grimm. Uh, so, yeah, someday... Harold Burglar. Yeah, Harold Burglar. We called him Howl Burger. And then... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have... Maybe when we get go to the break, I'll grab some of the other comics that I picked up. I think not this week, but last week. <laughs> go to the break are we a radio show now well you know what i mean like we're, we usually normally we talk all the way through but we're gonna put this into i i love right? that you said go for the break i love that we are going to have some sort of commercial break <laughs> that's great no, that, that's made me no that's made me very don't even go back now that you all right okay i'm i am all in favor of that 